0: really our aspirations and ambitions are that whatever we're doing, we're using the Olympics as a leverage point to bring federal investment and jurisdictional unity around implementing things that will be powerful for the Games, but more importantly, will be powerful and meaningful for um, the people of Los Angeles.
1: This is Transit Unplugged, I'm Paul Comfort. Good to be with you on another edition of the world's leading transit executive podcast, Transit Unplugged. News and views this week with Salita Reynolds, who is the chief innovation officer at LA Metro in Los Angeles, California, here in the United States. She's also the interim chief people officer. Carrying two hats today, Salita, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Great to be with you, Paul. So tell us about that. How did you? Let's just kick it off right away. So uh, how did you end up as Chief People Officer in your portfolio, which includes IT, I think, which is a big responsibility.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm asking myself the same question uh, these days every morning when I wake up. Uh, <laughs> but I think you know, in in public service, if you decide that you're going to to have a career in public service, it can take you in a lot of unexpected directions because. There's no real opportunity for an operating agency, especially one as large as LA Metro, to hit pause on any part of of what it what it does. And so, you know, sometimes when you have a turnover, you have changes in in personnel, and you need somebody to come in and be a pinch hitter. Um, our CEO Stephanie Wiggins asked me to step in as interim chief people officer, and so I said yes. And and really, it is uh, not not that, that far of a stretch. Uh, when I was the general manager at LADOT, which also has a mighty mighty transit service, LEDOT Transit, which is the largest municipal operator in LA County, you know, hiring and creating a positive culture and making anywhere any of these big public agencies making them really great places to work is truly the the secret sauce, I I believe in executing and delivering great service. So I I care passionately about what the chief people office does. I would just like to have one job instead of two, but for the moment, um, I have an outstanding deputy chief innovation officer, Marcel Porras, who started right in the nick of time just before this this happened. And so um, I have a really solid team that's keeping everything going on the innovation side of the house.
1: Well, I'm sure they're well served with you doing that because like you said, you were a GM. Tell us about your background some, Salita.
0: I started out, I was a history major and I graduated in 1998 and I had really no idea what I wanted to do. And I I hustled hard to get any kind of internship, a paid one, preferably uh, that I could. And the one that I landed happened to be with the bike program at the city of Oakland's public works agency. And in the late nineties in the state of California, Um, Bike programs were just starting to get going because of a a change in state law that made funding available to um, cities that had a bike program and that had a bike plan. It really incentivized this boom of bike planning and really thinking about streets differently. And I was fascinated uh, from the very beginning because I was creating something brand new. There wasn't a guidebook. There weren't people there to tell me I was doing it wrong. And, um happily there were a lot of folks across the country that were sort of in the same place and so it was also this incredible moment of finding a, a peer group a, a cohort of folks who all had the same kind of kind of um streak that I did and, and still do which is a desire to upset the status quo wherever it's it's not serving everybody uh well and so I started that that way and then I spent about a decade at a consulting firm called fair and peers which is where I really did fall in love with the people side of the job. I really loved learning about how to create a great team, how to lift people up, how to coach people and where they want to go in their careers, how to help them be successful and how to do the tougher parts of that job too, how to hold people accountable and not shy away from difficult conversations and still treat people with a, you know respect and dignity, even through really tough moments um, You know where, where you're having to deliver tough news and I learned about how to run a business. Um, but I, I couldn't stay away from public service. I'm a local government nerd for life. Uh, I was in youth legislature when I was in high school and student government. Um, and I, I wanted to be back close to where decisions are made. And so I went back and took a job at the SFMTA in the livable streets subdivision there of that, uh, of that organization. Um, getting back to my my love of kind of redesigning the public right-of-way, moving those white lines around on the asphalt, you know, six inches here and six inches there, and, de- and sort of ha- having the the conver- t- conversations about what happens when you do that with communities, what they lose, what they gain. And then I got a call about the job at LADRT. It happened to be um, a guy named Mark de Laverne, who I was on a board with, the Association of Pedestrian and Bicycle Professionals. Um, His boss, Sam Schwartz, who was formerly commissioner of New York City DOT, was participating in a a search and helping Jeanette Sadek-Khan, another former commissioner of New York City DOT, to find the next general manager for the city of Los Angeles. And at that time, I had only managed about, I'm going to say, a maximum of of about 20 uh, planners and engineers primarily. And LEDOT at that time had a workforce of around 2,000. Um, and not just planners and engineers, but you know every every different type of job classification. And I figured I wouldn't be the right fit for the job, but I felt like I wasn't going to have another opportunity to have a one-on-one interview with Jeanette Sadek-Khan. And so I said, yeah, sure, put me in the hat, um, but there's no way this is going to work out. And lo and behold, behold and lo, I was just dead mm-hmm. wrong about that. Took the job, started in 2014, was very sure that I was not going to last more than one year. But, you know, I ended up being there for, for eight years. And then I decided it was time for me to hand the torch off. Those big operational jobs are incredibly challenging. They take up a lot of your life. I have two kids and I felt like I, I wanted a job that I could get a little bit more work-home balance. And I knew there was an opening at, at LA Metro. And I also feel really strongly about supporting Stephanie and her leadership. And wanted to do everything I could to help LA Metro be successful. So that's how I landed here. And that lasted about six months before I uh, acquired a second job.
1: Yeah. Well, I share your passion for local government too, Salita. And, and uh, I'm a history major too. So we have, we have nice. that in common. Yeah. nice.
0: Right. There's a lot of us. Yeah. So tell us government. about the
1: office uh, of innovation at LA Metro and what you're working on now.
0: Sure. So, the it, it was formerly known the artist, formerly known as the Office of Extraordinary Innovation, um, started under then CEO Phil Washington and Dr. Joshua Shank, created really to try and bring forward, try and try and establish an office whose job it was to do a couple things. One, to be out in the marketplace, figuring out what was going on, what people were talking about, what new ideas they could bring home. And But second, to create a way for private companies that had great ideas to come and pitch them, to do reverse pitches. So they established something called the unsolicited proposals process, uh, which still exists to this day and has been uh, really successful in many ways. There's nothing in the world of public agency procurement that everybody agrees is amazing. But I think that this, this particular way of doing things has proven really positive all around. So Unsolicited proposals remains part of it. When Stephanie took over as CEO, she rebranded the office as the, of the as the Office of Strategic Innovation and um, really added something else significant to its portfolio, which is major events, primarily the the 28 Olympic and Paralympic Games. So the OSI is the office that's that's responsible for trying to convene and put forward the mobility plan for the 28 Games and really our aspirations and ambitions are that whatever we're doing, we're using the Olympics as a leverage point to bring federal investment and jurisdictional unity around implementing things that will be powerful for the Games, but more importantly, will be powerful and meaningful for um, the people of Los Angeles. So a network of countywide bus-only lanes. The agency has currently got a, a program underway to build out about 100 miles of those Establishing a uh, large mobility hubs where people can change from you know a bike to a bus or a bus to a, a rail, etc, as well as first last mile improvements, a really cool program um, to bring arts and culture into an o- uh, an open streets program countywide that would celebrate the the local arts and culture. So that's all really cool, but there's a couple of other things that i I want to make sure that I mention. One is the mobility wallet. so, Uh, The city of Los Angeles and LA Metro are currently partnered on a pilot to establish a universal basic mobility program in South LA. And universal basic mobility is this idea that everybody ought to have access to the same array of dignified, reliable, safe transportation options to hopefully close the gap in accessibility between people who have a car and people who don't. And so, you know, that includes provision of services and includes redesigning streets. But LA Metro's role is the mobility wallet, which is $150 uh, that we're giving to 2,000 Angelenos, $150 a month for a year. Half of those folks will also be getting a smartphone as well. But we're, we're, you know, creating, trying out a number of different payment methods at the same time in our little lab. So that's a really cool project underway, and it's just about to uh, formally launch. And then the Visionary Seed Fund. So this is a program established in Measure M, which allocates some dollars for research partners and transit agencies who have new ideas about how to improve their services. So this, this round, which is the first one, um, is really around increasing ridership on transit. And that can be anything from, you know, providing free e-bikes to folks to solve that first last mile problem, or directly addressing the needs of women and girls on transit, or dealing with some of the safety, security, and cleanliness challenges that we have. So, you know, that's a, if there's a lot going on in the office, we're also doing the internal agency strategic plan, and uh, the big finale is the traffic reduction study, aka congestion pricing.
1: Wow, you have a lot on your plate. Uh, congestion yes. charging is is an interesting concept. We'll have to dig into that another time. Let me ask you, because you are moving kind of on a global stage, what inspires you on the global mobility stage as heading up, you know, one of our country's biggest cities uh, innovation programs?
0: Yeah, well, at the moment, you know, what I'm most keenly interested in are what uh, global cities that have hosted an Olympiad have done that has really proven to be a legacy, right? So a lot of folks are like, well, you should go to Paris, right? Because Paris is hosting the 24 games who wouldn't love to go to Paris? I'd love to go to Paris. They're doing some incredible things. But for me, I'm interested in who has hosted the games and made improvements that have really lasted. And there's really three places that come to mind when I think about that. Um, there's London, obviously, um, some incredible work they've done opening new rail lines and uh, for their games and really the, the whole Docklands a redevelopment that became a legacy of that, those games and re- and remains a really powerful driver of their economic growth. Then there's Vancouver, again, their False Creek development where they built the, the Olympic Village and then turned that into um, housing for folks, obviously housing and how we deal with our crisis here in Los Angeles and really the entire West Coast of the United States is front of mind for any transportation planner because we all know that when the land use side doesn't get it right, we're the ones that end up having to clean up the mess and pay the price and deal with all of the weird things that happen when, um, house- when you have a housing m- jobs mismatch and so on. But the one that I think is most similar to Los Angeles and of most interest given the things we're trying to do is Rio. So what Rio did for their games, I don't know if you remember, but there are all the stories in the news about how the government had planned to build out this very ambitious uh, subway system and they weren't going to get it done in time. So they had to shift gears uh, really quickly and instead focused on the build out of a network of bus rapid transit lines, which resulted in a significant mode shift that remains to this day. And those projects remain, um, I think, some of the, the best in the world. Um, when it comes to a real system of of bus rapid transit, so those are the those are the ones i'm, I'm that are on my my playlist of um spots that I want to learn more about and and go visit
1: so the Olympic Games are coming in twenty eight to Los Angeles, and I know you have a strategic plan getting ready for them, and you're I'm sure coordinating with all the other uh, Metro link and everybody else around there. I guess uh, that's my last question to you is, um, what, what's in the game plan for the next uh, four years to get ready, other than the things you've already mentioned?
0: Yeah, you know, for there's really interesting sort of, you know, as you can imagine, uh, multiple multiple levers, multiple things going on and on multiple timelines. But the ones I'm most interested in are, are those things that uh, are going to serve, are going to have a triple bottom line win. Yes, they're going to be powerful for the games, but they're also going to be a legacy. Uh, improvements that stay and that have value beyond the games, and that that ideally investments that correct historic racial inequities. So neighborhoods that have been disinvested in over long periods of time, for many reasons, some of them overtly racist. This is kind of the moment to bring that community into the the driver's seat in kind of directing how we make those investments, and so. The There are buckets of projects. So there's an external group called LA28 that's really in charge of delivering the games themselves. Their front of mind for them are the supplemental bus program. We're going to have to borrow probably about at least 1,500 or so buses from around the country um, to serve the spectator and, and workforce needs at the games. And so, you know, where are we going to store them? How are we going to fuel them? By 2028, we're probably going to have a fleet that is, Battery electric, maybe hydrogen, fuel cell and CNG all at the same time. How are we going to, to deal with the interoperability issues and how are we going to take delivery of those buses? Who's going to operate those buses? Right. Big logistical challenge. That is a huge work stream in and of itself. They're also interested keenly in the games route network, which is where, you know, we're actually walling off lanes for use during the game. I'm interested in the Games Route Network too, but not in the 80% of it or so that's on the freeways. I'm interested in how can we use the Games Route Network to claim space for transit-only lanes, to claim space that can be repurposed for protected bike lanes or for wider sidewalks. But then there the other buckets are system-wide rail improvements. You know, there's a, a hairball of an operational challenge called the Washington Y here, where Whole bunch of lines converge as they go into downtown and come out of downtown. Long-standing pain point for pretty much all involved. You know, can we solve that by closing off some streets and doing some things that maybe we might not otherwise be able to do um, and demonstrate just how powerfully um, it improves things for people using the system, but also station improvements. Um, the seventh 7th Street Metro station, one of the oldest in the system, also one of the most important you would be hard-pressed when you walked around that station to feel as though the, the, the transit system is welcoming you and treating you with a high level of dignity, right? It was designed a long time ago, and it needs an update. But then there are, you know, I mentioned mobility hubs. I mentioned bus-only lanes. I mentioned first-last-mile improvements. I mentioned the open streets projects, et cetera. There are those kinds of things as well. But the last thing I'll say is sort of a, and I would be remiss not to mention because we're hosting the Paralympic Games as well, there are a lot of accessibility enhancements that we're going to be focused on. But having been here, you know, last year when the World Cup was on and um, witnessing all of the spontaneous street parties that were happening and viewing parties that were happening around the city, LA is going to be one of the 10 American cities that hosts the World Cup in 2026. And as I think about 2028, I'm really interested in how can we create a nimble sort of system of modular street furniture that can be easily deployed and taken in, shade sales, because shade is a big issue in a city like Los Angeles and it's actually an equity issue, and certain neighborhoods that are hotter and have less shade and others that have more. How can we bring out the sort of movable feast where when we see where there are spontaneous parties or things? gatherings, people want to pull out a big screen and watch an event. How can we be supportive of that? How can the public right-of-way and the transportation system that collectively in this region we manage and operate and own, how can that be the stage for fellowship, for community? How can it invite people in and treat them with hospitality and generosity and in so doing, spark people's imagination about what streets could really be and, and what purposes they could serve in the future. Those kinds of things, I think, are not the you know big capital projects like the Purple Line extension to UCLA, which is very exciting. But for my money, if we can do those at scale, we have a, a chance to really transform the culture of, of Los Angeles and, and embody the best of what these games, whether it's the World Cup or the Olympic Games, what they really have the power to do, which is to bring us together and inspire us in service of of what the human spirit is capable of. Wow,
1: you got a great vision, Salita. I can see why you're in that role. <laughs>
0: <Thanks>. <laughs> that was awesome.
1: <laughs> and you've got your plate full, as you've uh, as you've yeah, outlined sure for do. us. Yeah, congratulations and best wishes to you as you, uh, as you carry out all those functions. You have so much going on in addition to your new role as interim chief people officer, but all the innovations you bring in there and uh, we look forward to seeing your success.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It was great to be here. Hi, I'm Alaya Carey, a communications consultant who loves working with public transit agencies. In this episode, Salita Reynolds talks about her career trajectory and the decisions she made to keep a healthy work-life balance. So let's talk for a minute about how transit marketers can plan our days and our careers to do the same. First of all, let's acknowledge that working in public transit applies unique pressures. Transit professionals take our responsibility to the public very seriously. We often tell ourselves that missing deadlines or fudging details will impact our riders, perhaps thousands of people, and we're not always wrong about that. But the riding public also needs us healthy. Marketing has many advantages for work-life balance. Marketers can often work remotely or at least have some flexibility for family and personal demands. Prevent that flexibility from pushing work into our personal hours by using reliable project management tools so you can feel reassured you're not missing anything. Start every day knowing your top priorities, placing self-care at the top of the list. Finally, marketing is a digitally driven line of work. Unplug from those electrons for a portion of every day to give your mind and eyeballs some space. If you'd like to talk more about marketing and work life balance or anything else related to communications and public transit, look me up on LinkedIn. My first name is spelled E L E A, last name C A R E Y.
1: And now we take you to the leadership development portion of the Transit Unplugged podcast. As you know, we've been highlighting folks who have something to say about leadership in our industry of public transportation. And who better to have on today than the CEO? of Mobility Leadership Advisors, my friend, Josh Cohen. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Paul, so nice of you to have me, I appreciate it. Absolutely, Josh is a longtime industry leader in the public mobility industry here in the U.S., worked for Transloc, and Josh, you had your own podcast, The Movement, for several years, didn't you? I did, and I know how much work it takes to bring this to your
3: audience every week, so thank you, Paul, for for everything you do. It's really a, a tremendous asset for the industry. We're grateful you. that you do the work.
1: Appreciate it. As, as you and I were talking about in the green room, I've heard from so many people who've told me this podcast has helped them move up in their career because they are exposed to all the, you know, the great leaders of our industry, kind of get to glean from them. And also, you know, our talk about what's happening going forward in the future, kind of transit trends. So this year we've decided to add in an actual leadership development component since people are utilizing the podcast as a personal development tool. Why not talk directly to that? And I know you've got some thoughts, Josh, on what it takes to move up in our industry or any industry. Talk to us about that.
3: Yeah, for sure. So the backstory here is that um, I'm a runner. And so I've done, I think, seven or eight half marathons. I did my first full marathon in Philadelphia in the fall. And if you're going to run, you've got to have a stable base. And the problem was I have flat feet (laughs) and my feet were so flat that I couldn't get a stable base. So I had foot surgery 20 years ago just to to give myself a stable base in my feet. And that's really kind of how I look at coaching and and success and moving up in your career in the transit industry or elsewhere. And it really is about that stability, having a real stable base. And so in my mind, that stable base is made up of three things. So first is values. So values influence everything we do. They're the, the tools that we make decisions by. But the problem, and we can talk a little bit more about this if you want, but the problem is a lot of folks haven't clearly defined what those values are for themselves. That's number one. That's the number one thing. The second thing is strengths. So we we talk a lot about our weaknesses and improving our weaknesses, but but what's more effective is nurturing our strengths. And then the third thing is a compelling future vision. So if we don't know where we're going. How are we going to know when we get there? So that's one of the things I work a lot with folks in the transportation industry and beyond is really helping them get clarity on those three areas. Because if they're not clear on those three areas, they're not going to get very far.
1: I enjoy, I think you send out, how often do you send that email out? Once a week, about the same tempo as when I had the podcast. So I replaced the podcast with an email newsletter. We'll put a link to that in the show notes if people are interested in getting your newsletter on leadership. So let's dive in. So I'm a guy in the industry who is a planner and a transit agency in Kalamazoo, Michigan. and I want to move up. I want to become the supervisor and the manager of my department and maybe eventually, you know, a CEO of an agency. Why are values important to me? Yeah, so
3: I think values are so important because I think in that that example you just gave is is a great one, so sometimes folks make this. Uh, decision, or they, or they kind of um, move into this environment where they say, oh, I sh- I should move up in the organization. That's like, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm using air quotes here. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm supposed to do. And, you know, that may be the right answer for folks, but, but what is more important is that they've spent the time to really think about what's important to them. And, and so what I mean by that, for me personally, what I care about more than moving up in an organization is the impact I can have. So, so the impact, even over title, even if I don't have the title, you know, even if the world doesn't recognize that, you know, I've got a fancy title, if I personally know that I'm making an impact, I can put my head on my pillow well at night. And so I think that's what I, that's what I mean there is that, is that having that reflection time where you say, okay, as I'm thinking about this, you know, maybe it is recognition from peers. Maybe this title is important to folks. And again, there's no value judgment here. What's right for you may not be right for me, and that's okay. So it's not that there's something that's right and something that's wrong. It's determining what's right for you. You know, another one for me, for instance, is autonomy. Autonomy is super important for me. And so I would not work in a role that didn't give me that autonomy. So to take that to that example you just gave with that planner, as that planner is thinking about the next steps in their career, let's say autonomy is important to them. Certain environments are going to give folks more autonomy than others. Certain roles are going to give, more autonomy than others. Certain agencies are going to, you know, have leaders that give more autonomy than others. And so understanding that that's an important value for you will help guide how you take those next steps in your
1: career. Ah, yeah, that's very interesting, Josh. So if I wanted autonomy, I may be attracted to a job that would let me have more independence or if I want to have an impact and I want then that planning job where I'm actually planning out the routes that will serve a million people in my city i think i want to stay in planning versus maybe go into safety where uh or a safety supervisor position where you know maybe i feel like i don't have as much direct impact on the whole system so by figuring out kind of where it is you want to go and working your way backward like the 7 habits of highly effective people say start with the end in mind mm-hmm. that's your value
3: yeah totally and and i see this all the time with folks that again they've ended up in say middle management where instead of uh, being connected to say the riders when they were more in operations or, uh, or, or other, uh, aspects of the business, they're now pushing paper around, they're managing budget and there's nothing wrong with doing those things, but that, that may not be aligned with their values or to maybe go to that second part of that, that area, that, that tripod I talked about before is your strengths. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So as, as you, as you move, uh, in your career, Um, again, you know, people tend to like, they haven't really thought about, they tend to try to move up and get more pay and more responsibility and so forth. Again, nothing wrong with that. But one of the things that's super important and and with my clients, I use a a program uh, through Clifton Strengths, and it's a a fantastic thing that helps go through your top strengths and they're very individualized for you. So for instance, my top strength is learning. Now, is that any surprise why I hosted a podcast for three years? I got to learn from the best and the brightest every single week. Like that was like catnip for me. And now so, you work at Duke, which is yeah, a no. big learning institution. Yeah, that's right. And my office looks out on the, on, on the library here. So like I, I'm in a, a great, great position to really foster and lean into that strength of mine. And so uh, for instance, if if you've moved into a role just because it's been provided for you or or that's what you're supposed to do, but it's not aligned with your strengths, you're not going to be happy. And again, I see folks all the time that are in roles that they're just not aligned with as far as their strengths. So getting clear on what those strengths are and then trying to think about what are ways that I can, can move towards that, I think are are super critical aspects there for anyone who wants to move in their career. And this is maybe a, a, the logical then next step is, is thinking about where do you want to go? Yeah. And that's where this compelling future vision is so valuable. The approach I like to take, I, I borrowed from a eatery in Ann Arbor, Michigan, The Ride. Hey, ro- hey The Ride. And, um, and, and uh, it's a group called Zingermans. And the thing that they do so well, and their CEO and they've done across their whole organization, is work together to create this compelling narrative of this future point in time. And it's not a strategic plan. It's not how to get there. It's just what you want to be true. And so an example might be, it's Father's Day, 2026. I wake up to hear my kids making me breakfast. You know, I smell the bacon cooking uh, and uh, I strap on my running shoes because I'm preparing for a half marathon that's happening in a couple of weeks. Um, I dash out the door as I, as I, as I walk out the door, I reflect on this conversation I had last week with one of my colleagues. I'm so lucky I work with such great colleagues. That's really important to me. So again, you can have this rich level of detail for this future vision in the process of going through creating that vision really gets at it It almost uncovers some things that sometimes folks are maybe scared to admit to themselves because folks have usually been promoted to roles because they're good at them. Not necessarily because they necessarily enjoy doing it. And they're sometimes scared to say, hmm, is, this really, is this really what I want to do? And so I sometimes help folks with that transition as well. How, how do I, if I've trained for planning, if I have a master's degree in planning, don't I have to stay there the rest of my life? No, you don't. You can do whatever you want. The future is yours, but you have to own it. You have to, you have to really think and reflect and then chart a course to get there. And that's part of what what really getting at this foundational work of, of understanding your values, understanding your strengths, and understanding your future vision allows you to do.
1: Awesome. I've always believed that the uh, you can pretty much figure out your destiny or where you are self-actualized if you find the point between your interests and your ability where they intersect. Uh, and I've taught that as commencement addresses at college and high schools, et cetera. And so it's kind of what you're saying, right? It's where your abilities are and you have to... Mm-hmm. There's a book out called Strength Finder that I used uh, mm-hmm. to help me do that, analyze what they were. Communication was one of them. <laughs> and um, but and then uh, your abilities and your interests, where they interline. And that's kind of what you're saying. So to move up and to actually not just move up, but maybe to improve your life, I think that's what you're talking about. You need to have establish what your values are. They're kind of the boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have to figure out what your strengths are, how you're going to move down the field. And then your vision is the goal line. I love it, Josh. Thanks for sharing with us today. Any other final closing thoughts?
3: No, I think this is this is fantastic uh, what you're what you're doing for the industry, paul, and i'm I'm so grateful for you taking the time to do it and share it with your listeners. And I know they appreciate it
1: as well. So thank you, well, thank you for the work you're doing as well to to grow our industry. We are only as strong, right, as our people. And uh, we're talking about how each of us can become better at what we do and have a bigger impact. Thank you for helping to share with us today on that. And we'll have links to Josh's, uh, how you can get a hold of Josh in the show notes of today's podcast. Thanks for being with us. Thanks.
3: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transit Unplugged with our special guests, Salita Reynolds and Josh Cohen. Now, coming up next week on the show, we have Conan Chung, Chief Operating Officer of LA Metro. Let's hear a little bit from that interview.
1: We took one station, Westlake MacArthur Park, on our red and purple lines, which is arguably you know one of the more challenging stations. Then we went from top to bottom, really identifying things that we could do to try to disincentivize negative behavior and really take back that station for our customers and for the community. If you
3: have a question, comment, or would like to be a guest on the show, feel free to email us at info at Transit Unplugged is powered by Medaxo. At Medaxo, we're passionate about moving the world's people. And at Transit Unplugged, we're passionate about telling their stories. So until next week, ride safe and ride happy.